Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello guys and girls, the program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hi guys, this is Santosh Nadiporam, your pediatric infectious disease doctor, after dark. And after a long hiatus, it, this is ER Josh. <laughs> Who got lost somewhere along the way. I think we <laughs> dropped him off in India and just remembered to go back. But I was found. And it's very appropriate that we brought him back in this time because... Once again, we're going to go around the world in 80 plagues. I think this is plague number two, right? This is. Please don't hold me to 80 exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we, we will try to hit 80. I promise you there are 80 plagues out there. There certainly are. So it's another late night recording for all of us. You will be hearing the return of our After Dark voices. Yeah. And... Why don't we start by taking a long, romantic after dark journey to Santosh? Where did you have this experience you were about to tell us? Yes, yeah, so I actually had this experience myself here in the wonderful city of Los Angeles, but it was that's not very exotic. No, but that's okay. <laughs> it was brought to me from the wonderful country of Israel. This story is in press right now. It's it should be released soon, but I think it, it's okay for me to tell the story because it's gone around a couple of times. Um, there was a group of children uh, over a summer. And they were going on a group field trip together. They had all signed up out to Israel to visit various sites and learn a little bit more about that country. So they went out there and they stayed in the desert and in the city. But during the time that they were supposed to be visiting northern Israel, there was tension along the Israeli-Palestine borders, and they could not stay there for fear of their lives, frankly. So they stayed out of the desert, had a beautiful time. They were under the stars, but they did not have tents. The children at the time just laid out. They had a good time. There was a sandstorm, so they covered up and snuggled uh, in their sleeping bags and put it over their head. And the rest of the trip went fairly uneventfully. They came home. And soon after, kids started having little lesions all over their skin. And a lot of them described it as something that looks like a little ulcer. It would become shallow, look a little bit wet in the middle, and they'd have edges and crusts. And at first... What kind of things were going on in these sleeping bags? <laughs> no, none of these were in the genital area. <laughs> but a lot of these were on ex what would be kind of exposed areas on arms, legs. And 
it, it so happened, and, and the reason that we published this, my colleagues and I decided to publish this, is that we did not make the diagnosis. The interesting thing happened where you know, these lesions were going on and on, and at first they looked like any old cut or scrape that you would get that looks like it's healing, but it would not heal. So a mom of one of these kids decides to go online and put in the words Israel and skin lesion. And up pops this weird, strange thing called leishmaniasis. And she goes to a doctor in the Southern California area and says, Hey, have you heard of this thing called leishmaniasis? What is this? What's going on? The doctor at first goes, are you crazy, woman? You know, there's no leishmaniasis over here. Stop it. Go away. But eventually she cajoles the doctor into doing a biopsy. Lo and behold, leishmaniasis. They find the little parasites in there. And by this way, by the way, guys, we'll talk about this. But by parasites, I mean single cell parasitic organisms that require host cells to feed. So these little amoeboid little parasites were there in the skin. Oh my God, you have leishmaniasis. And so the child goes to social media, goes to Facebook and says... "On the Because what else would you do? Of course, and posts it on their group Facebook and say, hey, guess what I got, guys? I got this thing called leishmaniasis. And, you know, he's happy. Oh. <laughs> did he take a mole selfie? He he did not do a mole selfie. This would be a lesion selfie. Post it on selfie. Instagram. They went to Facebook because Facebook has pages that you can make exclusive or private. So posted it to the group Facebook page and boom, all of a sudden a kid goes, hey, I have something like that. Like wildfire, this spread over the internet and the kid went to their parents who went to their doctors and said listen my child has this please help and this weird exotic strange disease which is not seen very often in the United States at all was self-diagnosed by kids and parents over social media and they came to us with a diagnosis saying please wow. treat us what would we do uh, without Facebook I'm saying and so you're saying this infection although protozoal yes, went viral it went viral Exactly. And one of the kids made a very cute t-shirt. They said, I went to Israel and all I got was leishmaniasis. And the reason why they could be so happy about this was, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about this during this, was, this was a cutaneous leishmaniasis. It's fairly benign. It's not terribly harmful. And there's an imminent cure. So they were able to take meds and, and clear this up right away. So that it was a very kind of funny, jolly thing. But it showed the power of social media to propagate information, and in this case, in a very helpful way. It also showed the power of Jewish mothers. And Jewish <laughs> Honey, I told you, you want to make sure you go to your doctor and have them look at the ulcers. You don't know, you could have leishmaniasis or something. <laughs> Is that what a Jewish mother sounds like? Enough time in voice training and, and acting classes, and that's a beautiful Jewish mom accent. So this was a surprise to everyone, and one of the reasons for that this was such a big, you know, wh why the heck did this happen, and why has this never happened before? This group had been going out to Israel for nigh on 20 years. Well, it turns out that there was an outbreak going on right now in Israel uh, during that period of time, and we'll talk a little bit about what has contributed to that outbreak and the epidemiology. Uh, but this was a brand new, gigantic outbreak, which was transported overseas and brought over here and then diagnosed by multiple parents and children. It seems like the Jews aren't the first one who figured this disease out. Incans, actually, in the 15th and 16th century, figured this illness out. Let's go into the history about this. This disease has been found all over the world and has been given many names, which, knowing as you do, Josh and Santosh, how much I love my word origins and etymology, mm, and history. Doing, the research, yeah. Yeah, doing the research on this episode was like a Christmas gift. <laughs> or maybe a Hanukkah. Well, yeah. <laughs> as you correctly noted, we have texts from the Spanish conquistadors who noted Incan, Incan farmers or Incan workers coming back from the Andes that had skin lesions and pre-Inca pottery that you can see in the museum in Cusco depicts people with some deformed faces and skin lesions. So these ulcers actually resembled leprosy lesions, and if you remember our leprosy episode a few 
a few weeks back. Because of that, they called this disease in Peru Andean sickness <laughs> or white leprosy. Oh, which is as opposed to the black leprosy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Why? Why's it gotta be white leprosy? I wasn't there for that episode. I was lost. Don't yeah. ask. Me. <laughs> so I just I like that we went straight to to white leprosy, and it's not white because of Caucasians, because the lesions themselves are quite pale in color. Right. Uh, now this was in Incas, but if we jump ahead to the mid-18th century, you start to see it more in Africa and India, and that's, that's around your part of the world, uh, your, your ancestry, correct, ER, Josh? Yeah, it actually is. My parents hail originally from Calcutta, uh, or Bengal, and that's where we actually also noted this illness, the British, by doing some research into it and noticing these similar kind of lesions that the Incans were known to have in the 15th and 16th century. And we actually called it Kala Azar, or translated into English, black fever. The British government funded a study into figuring out what this mysterious illness was. And it's only when one of their own white settlers <laughs> that actually contracted this horrible illness, when they finally decided to look into it uh, using a microscope. And yes. they found these very interesting bodies in the blood, and specifically in the spleen, where the blood kind of drains through. They actually called it first the dum-dum fever. If my, if my Hindi's correct... Kal also relates to the goddess uh, Kali and and means fatal in Hindi. Um, so it could also it could either be black fever or fatal fever. That is correct, Josh. <laughs> and the the biggest outbreak in India happened in the Burdwan district in Lower Bengal. So this was also known as Burdwan fever. And originally they thought it was malaria, but it was resistant to quinine, which mm -hmm. was the treatment at the time. Right. So this was all, you know, during the Victorian era, because when else would anything happen? <laughs> and in fact, even in, in 1917, British officers stationed in Jericho referred to leishmaniasis as Jericho buttons. They seem to have a million names for this. Yeah, <laughs> I like I like Jericho buttons. Jericho buttons it sounds, is nice. It's it's it sounds innocent and cute. So you have all your students, Santosh, who came back from their field trip and contracted a dangerous case of Jericho buttons. <laughs> it just it takes away a certain urgency. There were so many little buttons. Yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> and and we'll get to why they. Now we're of course referring to various forms of leishmaniasis. You know, the Calaisar presents as very differently from Jericho buttons, but it's too cute. It is. I, it's very cute. I would love to have, just by name alone, would you rather have Kala Azar or <laughs> Jericho buttons? <laughs> there you go. But, and, and, you know, these are two very different diseases caused by different species of the same organism. So let's get to why it's named this organism. And it's actually named for a Glaswegian, oh. a gentleman named William Leishman, mm -hmm. who was serving with the British Army in India, who, as E.R. Josh noted, only became really concerned with this when it affected the British soldiers. <laughs> Damn those British. Yeah. Don't, don't, be whiting, don't be biting any white people. Sandflies, you know, it's, <laughs> that's this is what you get. So, this this gentleman did discover, and as as you said, Yard, it was in the town of Dum Dum, and he called it Dum Dum Fever, which really just seems like adding insult to injury. <laughs> like, way to get this disease, Dum Dum. <laughs> oh, you dumb! It's dum actually dumb. pronounced Dum Dum. So. Dumb. Yeah, I put it. <laughs> keep the H in there. I don't see how that makes it better. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. We're trying so hard here. Yeah. Dr. Leishman published his his findings. He had used a special stain uh, trying to figure out what was going on. And a few weeks after this, another gentleman in a different part of India, Charles Donovan, who actually did a lot of work with both Indian and British uh, soldiers and residents, 
recognized these symptoms and published his own discovery. He said, hey, what appeared in your British soldier has also shown up in a lot of my patients. And he used the stain and identified these little ovoid bodies. And that's when the disease became known. Well, the two of them had a big old scientific fight. And eventually a third British gentleman stepped in and said, you know what? Calm down. We're just going to call it after both of you and name the species Leishmaniasis donovani. So it's named for the two scientists, doctors, who first reported the disease, although it had been around since, as we said, the 15th and 16th centuries. Sure. Yeah. There you go. Another thing stolen by the white man. So how do you get this? <laughs> so how do you get this horrible parasite anyway? The way it spread is basically by the bite of a sand fly. It bites their skin, just like how malaria is transmitted, and it injects this form of the parasite called a metacyclic promastigote. I just wanted to say that word, <laughs> and boom, you know, you've pretty much had the disease. It's actually pretty amazing as to the spread of the sand fly and how many different countries that are can be possibly affected by this infection. So, Santosh, you're our infectious disease doctor. What can you tell us about the sandfly transmission? Yeah, so uh, this is a vector-borne parasite, just like Josh said, a lot like malaria. So anywhere the, the parasite has adapted itself to living in the gut and the mouth parts of this sandfly, and there are many phlebotomine sandflies all over this planet, and the parasite works with the sandfly, and the sandfly works to the, with the parasite to transmit. So these horrible little things, as long as the environment is okay for them to live in, they'll just go from person to person drinking blood the same way that a mosquito is. Or a and, vampire. Or a vampire. Horrible little things. So <laughs> if you are in a place where the sandfly vector is... Uh, ubiquitous if it's around everywhere and if there is a high enough population who have leishmaniasis and pretty much all humans what will happen is that sandfly will pick up the leishmania from some human or another it'll come around and bite you and then it will infect you with whatever regional species of leishmania is around and upon the bite, that parasite will get released. This is an intracellular parasite, which means that those parasites have to go bury themselves in your cells. And so they'll hitch a ride on either a skin cell or a macrophage, which is an immune cell, and get around to wherever it goes and destroy whatever tissue that it can while it is dividing and proliferating, and then the next sandfly to come along will bite you and pick up the leishmania from you and take it over to somebody else. Now, this protozoa has two different forms. There's the form that really just sits around and does nothing, and that's what the sandflies have, because you may wonder, why don't the sandflies get sick? Because mm -hmm. it's not, you know, you're not having sandflies get into your bloodstream. They're actually transmitting. So in their body, it just sits around and does nothing. But then when they take your blood, they pay you for that blood with a little gift of this, as, as E.R. Josh said, metacyclopromastigo. <laughs> you know, sure. take that supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> and they inject this parasite into, the, into your blood as they take their meal away. Think of it as a really terrible drive through Like, you go to McDonald's, you order a burger, and you toss a grenade on your way out. <laughs> <laughs> horrible. Just absolutely horrible. There's three different forms of the disease that uh, leishmaniasis, wow, <laughs> I can't sure. pronounce that, uh, can uh, transmit. And the most common kind is the cutaneous disease, which is most often seen in Afghanistan, Algeria, Brazil, and Colombia, as well as Iran. That primarily affects our skin. And then there's also the mucocutaneous uh, form, which is found more in Central America and northern parts of South America, which, in addition to affecting the skin, also affects our 
glands, such as the salivary glands, our mouth, and so on. And then lastly, which is also the most most dangerous form, is the visceral form, which is seen in parts of Asia as well as uh, South America as well. And that affects organ system as well and is much more of a deadly disease. And lest you think you are totally safe here in the United States, <laughs> it actually has been in southern Texas. It's, it's spread from Argentina all the way up to southern Texas. And as recently as this year, we've started to see it creeping into northern Texas. Right. And luckily so far, that disease is only the cutaneous and in rare cases, the mucocutaneous form. So it's it's the much, much less severe form of the disease. So before we get into the symptoms of each of the three kinds, how would you diagnose this, Santosh? I mean, aside from Jewish mothers and Dr. Google. <laughs> well, your your very first hint is for index of suspicion is travel. So has a person gone to an area where this type of disease is endemic? So either they come to you with a fever in the case of visceral ischemiasis or abdominal complaints, or they come to you with lesions on their skin or in their nose and mouth in the case of mucocutaneous or cutaneous Leishmaniasis, and you say, oh, "Okay, where have you been lately? You know, have you been to Central or South America? Have you been to uh, certain parts of Africa? Certain parts?" So of I'm going to narrow it down yeah. even more. It's have sure. you been somewhere with a tropical climate? Because right. that's where these sandflies thrive. There you you know, if you were in Brazil, but up near Christ the Redeemer, probably okay. Right. Down in the favelas, not so much. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then after you've kind of captured what type of lesion you're looking at and where the person has traveled, then the manifestations are going to be for old world cutaneous leishmaniasis when you're looking at it, it's just pretty much going to look like a non-healing ulcer. So it's there's going to be, wherever it is at the site of the bite, you're going to see a papule, which is a bump. And then that can actually, and it can be weeks or months later after the bite. So that papule will grow in size, and then it'll dry up, there'll be a crust, and then that crust will fall off and make an ulcer with these margins that look kind of purple and that kind of thing. So that will be your the the most common course that you'll see if a person comes to you from what's around the Mediterranean basin. So northern Africa going up around uh, the Sinai Peninsula, up around Israel, and up southern Italy, Greece, all these areas will have this cutaneous old world leishmaniasis. If it's African or if it's American cutaneous leishmaniasis, then you'll also see mucosal ulcers just like Josh talked about. So in the nose um, or, or in and around the mouth. So you will see similar types of uh, lesions like that. And then visceral leishmaniasis is going to be this Kala Azar uh, manifestation which can be, again, weeks to months after the initial bite. And then you sometimes see a skin nodule, but very rarely. But these guys will have, they'll look almost exactly like malaria. They'll be tired. They'll have fevers. And the thing that'll kind of distinguish, if you're lucky enough to catch it, is what's called a a dual spiking fever. So you'll have double daily spikes. You'll have the morning and the evening, spike, spike. And if you catch them late, then the spleen, which over on the left side of the abdomen, will be really, really big. And, you know, that is a, a, a sign of, of impending worsening and getting close to death. So uh, that the visceral leishmaniasis is a much more sick looking person with splenomegaly, they can have a big liver as well, lymphadenopathy, so the big lymph nodes, and then um, these fevers that just will not go away. So now so you guys must be wondering, how do we diagnose this horrible condition? Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering that. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> but, you know, so guys, you, you have actually... a person who come to you with a skin lesion, and just like our little kids, they come to, hey, 
I have this weird thing which won't heal, and I just came back from Israel about, you know, a few <laughs> weeks ago. And I think Santosh just nailed it. We have to have a very high index of suspicion. One of the most important questions as providers, as doctors, that we should ask our patients is, have you traveled anywhere? Because many of these diseases and look very similar to each other. So it's very important that we get a very good history you know, from our patients as to where they recently traveled. Without a good history, we're not going to do a blood test. We're not going to know what to look for. Trust me, I never think of leishmaniasis <laughs> in my differential diagnosis when I see ulcers. So. No, by the end of this episode, he'll be saying it flawlessly. <laughs> I can't even pronounce it, damn it. No, no, it's tough. But he can say kala azar with no problem. That I How much does that sound like something they would have in Aladdin? Kala azar, you won't get far with leishmania. Oh. I, Do blood tests, then take a rest, watch out for that spleen. Oh, how long have you been sitting on that? About 30 seconds. Oh. <laughs> That's beautiful. I love it. I love it. Walk us through the laboratory diagnosis. Yeah, so in the lab, we basically do a blood test. As, as we said, it's a parasite. And in any kind of parasite, you want to look for these parasites under the microscope. So you're going to get a sample of skin or tissue from the wound, and you're going to put down a special kind of stain, um, pouring a certain ink or mixture on it that the cells will absorb and will kind of highlight the areas you're looking for. Now this is mostly for cutaneous the visceral disease, which is the more serious, can be diagnosed by blood tests by directly visualizing these bodies. Now, as we said, it's kind of a vampire-type disease, so you want to use a buffy coat, because those are <laughs> vampire slayers. <laughs> now, for the, for the cutaneous forms, actually, Josh, even before you go to blood, and you certainly will look in blood if you suspect that this thing is going to disseminate because of the region that they have been to, but the uh, cutaneous form, you can actually take what's called a punch biopsy. And Is that where you smack the patient and while they're unconscious take their skin? <laughs> that's that's uh, only if they have very poor insurance. No, uh, we, <laughs> we call our friends in dermatology, like our friend Rithika. She gets a little device and, and which uh, takes a chunk out of skin and they can actually aspirate or, or take a full thickness biopsy of that edge, that leading edge where the, the ulcer has kind of mounded up and, and formed a little crater. Yeah. And you can send that off. You can visualize the parasites by stain, uh, just like Josh said. Or you can even examine it by a method called PCR, where you grind up the tissue and then you extract the DNA. And you see if certain sequences of DNA, which are very unique to Leishmania, Leishmania and Leishmania species. <laughs> Here I go. So, Leishmania. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a specialist, people. I'm a specialist. <laughs> now, the, you look to see if any of that DNA is contained. And wonderfully, here in the United States, we have labs, parasitology labs from the CDC and local and state health departments which have parasitology divisions. And you can send it right to them and get a reply pretty quickly. Right, because these are people who deal with these sorts of diseases every day as a regular part of their job and are quite adept at identifying it. So now that we know the lab diagnosis, let's kind of talk about the different symptoms. So as we said before, there are three forms, visceral, cutaneous, and mucocutaneous. And the way they each look, you'll recognize kind of where in the world it is likely to have come from. So I'll start by actually talking about cutaneous leishmaniasis. We'll get to visceral last because it's the most serious. Cutaneous is usually characterized by lesions that range from pimples to very large ulcers. You'll see them on the skin of the legs, the feet, the hands, the face. Um, 
Now, this is the kind that you see regionally most often in the Middle East and around South America. And if you remember that 15th, 16th century Spanish conquistador. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Counts called this white leprosy. They had some very tan natives with some very pale, large lesions that looked very similar to the leprosy lesions. Most of these will heal spontaneously after many months, about a few months to a year and a half, and when they heal, they leave an unpleasant-looking scar that can be very disfiguring. Yeah. These diffuse lesions, they it's widespread. It'll be all over the body. Um, now, in localized, the local lesions may heal, but if you have this all over, your hands, your feet, your legs, your face, your head, your shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes, <laughs> you will note that they may not heal on their own. And there's a distinction made between whether this infection is from the old world or the new world. The old world, of course, being Europe and Asia, the new world being the Americas. The old world just in case this disease wasn't quite racist enough, was called was called Oriental Sore. Yes, very Oriental. Yes, which is which is almost as good as Jericho Button. <laughs> we and, pretty much have every race covered here with this disease. Right. <laughs> and if you didn't want to say Jericho Button, you could also go to the city of Aleppo and call it the Aleppo Button. Um, and if you were in Aleppo was in Italy and this was a big problem that soldiers during World War II got infected right. uh, while staging attacks. And if you see it in India, you can call it a New Delhi boil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My favorite New Delhi boil involves lentils. <laughs> oh, now I'm hungry. <laughs> now the... So, so that's the that's the general leishmaniasis, and the reason for the difference in old world and new world, and whether it's diffuse or local, has to do with the specific strain of leishmaniasis. Now, ER Josh, I believe you were going to tell us about the next the next kind. Yes, my favorite one uh, <laughs> is the cutaneous leishmaniasis. Okay, there you go, guys. I got it. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> applause, applause. And this beast spreads through our mucous membranes. And the most common one that we have is, of course, our mouth and our nasal mucosa, mucocutaneous leishmaniasis. Take uh, your hats off to this man. I told you, flawless by the <laughs> There you go. The I got it. Practice We're not even at the end yet. Yeah. <laughs> it can uh, be a pretty horrible condition, actually. If it gets advanced enough and, and if you don't treat it in time, it causes destruction of our lips, our throat, even even our soft and our hard palate. Pretty horrible disease, you know, if it's not treated. The scary thing, uh, actually, about this is that you may be infected with this and may not have symptoms until several years later. And this is seen most often in South America, where a, this actually ended up being the cause behind a lot of cleft palates. Mm-hmm. And, Early on, yeah. Right, and vocal distorted people who had just complete inability to speak, had lost their voice after an infection, um, horribly disfigured. If you remember from the tabloids a number of years ago, Bat Boy, uh, one of the earliest one of the earliest tabloid pictures actually was thought to have some 
form of disfiguring mucocutaneous leishmaniasis. Yes, and this is a little bit where that comparison to leprosy came from, in that this parasitic infection, just like leprosy, could be very disfiguring and destructive in a hurry if you didn't treat it. The third, final, and most fatal of of all the forms is the visceral. Mm -hmm. So the previous two really affect just the skin, meaning they'll disfigure you, but you're unlikely to die from them. So if you if you don't receive treatment, you're not going to have a good day. You probably won't be bringing in any supermodels, but you'll you can live, you can have a normal life. But visceral leishmaniasis, that's the one that's called Kala Azar. That's the one that's known as uh, black fever, as fatal fever, and is most common in the Indian subcontinent and North Africa. Affects your entire system, mostly the liver, the spleen, the bone marrow, anything that's a viscera, meaning inside. Right. So, Santosh, why don't you tell us about that? What kind of symptoms will you see in somebody who has visceral leishmaniasis? So visceral leishmaniasis has the broadest spectrum of disease. You're going to see a lot of different things depending on the immunity of the host and the uh, age of the host as well. But most commonly what's going to happen is that you're going to see just fever and fatigue that looks like many other viral, bacterial, and parasitic infections in that region. So this disease can be mistaken for malaria. It can be mistake, mistaken for trypanomyces, uh, uh, which is, you know, in, in Africa, it's going to be um, sleeping sickness. So there are a lot of symptoms here early on, which you're just seeing fever, you're seeing some abdominal pain, weight loss, um, and an inability to eat, and just looking down. It actually can even look like things like um, salmonella, uh, you know, where you have enteric fever. So rooting it out and finding out what's going on really has a lot to do with order the right blood test, having the right lab available, or sometimes, in some cases, just treating because your other treatments are failing and your patient is getting worse. Um, if you catch them late enough, or if you have an older person, you're going to get a big, big, big spleen. You're going to see big and large lymph nodes. And this is going to differentiate this disease from a few others, at least. For instance, malaria will uncommonly have lymph adenopathy and splenomegaly. Um, and then you can do a few other blood tests which will show you splenic dysfunction and blood dysfunction and uh, and liver dysfunction. So in, in these cases with visceral leishmaniasis, you really have to have a high, what's called a high index of suspicion, meaning that you're thinking about it because of the person's travel history and that Perhaps even other treatments have failed, and you don't have another diagnosis which would normally fit this clinical picture. Now, the reason the spleen gets enlarged in these people is the spleen's function in the body is, by and large, to filter the blood in the same way that kidneys filter toxins out of the urine. The spleen kind of takes a look at all the blood cells and says, nope, this one's too old. Let's send it to the nursing home for destruction and, you know, let the rest keep going through. Well, when you keep seeing a lot of these ovoid bodies, these intracellular parasites working their way inside cells in the bloodstream, the spleen catches them. It's very good at noticing that, and it holds them back and does not let them rejoin the body. Right. But it doesn't really have an effective way to get rid of them. It just quarantines, and as a result, your spleen gets bigger and bigger and can actually rupture. 
Right. And now if you're in India, as opposed to uh, Northern Africa, you can have this distinctive Kalazar, which is dark gray, dusky skin. And this is where that term of black sickness comes from, because the person actually starts to turn gray or black as well. But so this is it, quite when it comes to cutaneous or visceral, it really is an issue that's as easy as black or white. Wait, <laughs> <laughs> uh, on for about a week. <laughs> now, if for whatever reason you end up having this horrible condition, uh, visceral leishmaniasis, uh, the treatment actually is fairly simple. It seems like, and it just takes a single, you know, IV dose of a medicine called amphotericin. And the cure rates are pretty high for that, as much as 95%. And so that's pretty good news. Well, you say simple, but Santosh, what's the nickname for amphotericin? <laughs> so we'll, we'll call it amphoterrible uh, <laughs> often. We'll, we'll call it amphoterrible. And yes, you, you can certainly use liposomal amphotericin here in the United States for uh, the mucocutaneous form and the visceral form, a lot of those species that cre that cause those two distinct syndromes will respond. The problem with amphotericin B that we all know about is that it can hurt your kidneys, it can cause uh, problems with potassium and sodium, which in, in and of themselves cause their own problems. So this and it can sometimes even cause itself fevers and shaking rigors upon infusion of this drug. So even though there are several other drugs which are used around the world, this one is the one that's U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved, and it is one of the best to use. We do have other medications available. We have one called stiboglucanate, and this one is also a drug of choice, but it does need to be acquired through the CDC. It's not available anywhere else. Not so, at Walgreens. Yeah, so <laughs> you can give them a call and get this stuff. It's called Pentastam or Triostam, and you can administer this to your patients. And indeed, you're right, a course of treatment especially early on in therapy, is very, very helpful to completely clear everything away. The amphotericin B likewise can clear everything. And this is important because this drug is useful even in patients with HIV, who, when they acquire visceral ischemiasis, can have extremely severe disease. So if you're seeing a strange disease course with a person who has leishmaniasis and they've just recently returned please everybody who's listening who's a healthcare practitioner also think of hiv and check for that as well but in reality Anytime you see any strange disease you should probably start looking for hiv or another immune suppression as just part of your general workup <laughs> but in reality many of these people who have visceral leishmaniasis are much sicker you know i mm -hmm. mean a lot of these people are probably very dehydrated you know, they're very anemic as well. And so, you know, they have to be treated more holistically as well with IV fluids, blood transfusions, and so on. So it's right. probably not just a single dose of the liposomal amphotericin, you know. And so yeah. um, it's overall a pretty horrible, you know, condition. Yeah, support, you're absolutely right, Josh. Support is king. So whether you're choosing to use an antimonial compound or amphotericin B, lots of fluids, lots of rest... And uh, protection from samurai. Absolutely. Now, what <laughs> neither of you have mentioned is, by and large, all these treatments are intravenous. They have to be injected. Right. Uh, in the last three to four years, there has actually appeared an oral drug called miltofacine, mm -hmm. which you can take twice a month and orally and it's done for about three to four months but that's only for the cutaneous disease the one that leaves ulcers and disfiguring scars we still don't have anything better really to treat the visceral you the the cure is almost as bad as the disease in some cases sure. but part of the problem is the miltofacine is rather expensive its previous its predecessor was called Peronomycin or 
Paromycin. Exactly. Paromycin. <laughs> there you go. I had to stumble over something. Yeah, no. <laughs> and a treatment with paromomycin is by and large about 70 to 80% effective and it costs about $10. The drug was first identified in the 1960s but was abandoned because the company felt it wouldn't be profitable as the disease mostly affects poor people. <laughs> Way to this go. is not made up. That is that is straight from their own website. <laughs> no, no, the, it would not be profitable because only poor people get this disease. <laughs> this is true. You know, if you think about who will get exposed to sandflies, it's going to be either in urban or rural areas, but it's going to be people who don't have shelter from the sandflies. And this is the same problem that we encounter time and again with other vector-borne diseases like malaria. The people who are out there in the mud huts or the sand huts just exposed are the ones who are impacted most commonly and the people who are living in enclosed homes or maybe a high-rise apartment or something like that maybe even if they're in an endemic area those wealthy people in the high-rise condominiums are just not going to be affected so it's very sad but the the paromomycin for cutaneous leishmaniasis is precisely what we used here when our patients came to us and absolutely if it's put on regularly Granted, their you know their infection will probably get cleared on its own, but it'll take a long time. But this hastens recovery and kills the parasites much quicker and reduces the chances of scarring, which can sometimes be a worry if the the patient in question has a job or a vocation where you know they can't have a scar. So. You know, just a simple lotion right on the skin. And, uh, guys, uh, did it I also... It puts the lotion on its skin. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> or else it gets leishmaniasis again. <laughs> and again and again and again. And uh, we can also administer oral fluconazole, which is a very common antifungal that we use for a variety of candida infections like thrush or, you know, fungal vaginosis. So... This is, you know, combination medications with very cheap, easy-to-access medications are really what we need for the cutaneous form, and it's a real pity that people won't support the manufacture of these. Well, in fact, they, even though by and large people don't support these drugs, there is a group out there constantly facilitating the search for new drugs and they're based in switzerland because of course they are and <laughs> they have kind of a it's a no disease left behind <laughs> or it's it's called it's cute it's not as cute as jericho buttons but it's cute it's called the drugs for neglected diseases initiative yep. which really makes me feel like you know Oh, these diseases are neglected. Come on, guys. Let's all band together. Leave yeah. it up to the Swiss, pretty much the only country where this condition doesn't exist. So sure. figure out how to yeah, yeah, yeah. The people it. up in the mountains who will never, <laughs> ever have to see this are the ones who are doing a lot of work to try and help. So the Drugs for Neglected Disease Initiative is a collaborative, patient-need-driven, nonprofit company that promotes and funds other companies trying to develop new treatments for neglected diseases. Neglected diseases meaning diseases of poor people. Notably, <laughs> notably, let, well, did I say what race these poor people no, are? No, actually, he's being classist, not racist, but it's fine. Right. But their, develop, their goal is to develop and research treatments for diseases such as leishmaniasis, sleeping sickness, chagas, malaria and specific helminth infections. And they work with Doctors Without Borders. They work with the Japanese group who we mentioned in our leprosy episode who also provides free leprosy drugs to pretty much anyone. And it's a really great initiative with an adorable name. And they're at least trying to make sure other people are provided and covered. So, and they're doing this because these developing diseases or diseases in the developing world bring an immense economic and health burden to everyone, not just the people suffering from the disease. 
Right. And, you know, they ha- they do have a vested interest, Josh, truthfully speaking, because all of these so-called neglected diseases uh, are on the move. Just like you said, here in the United States, leishmaniasis is slowly spreading north. Um, we're getting pockets of leprosy here in the United States and outbreaks where we've never seen it before. Chagas disease, which is caused by the trypanosoma uh, parasite. This thing is moving north and outside of the tropical climates. Malaria is still rampaging everywhere. So what is happening right now is human-caused global warming or climate change. And in the context of this climate change is the availability of nice, beautiful, habitable environments for mosquitoes and sandflies and all these other horrible vectors being able to live where they could not exist before. And they're bringing these diseases with them. And in addition, you know, the world has become much smaller now. I mean, people are traveling a lot more and, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and so, you know, these diseases are spreading like wildfire now. And so that's another contributing factor as well. Right. So you're talking about, a, of course, a person, you know, travels halfway across the world, but no, sandfly comes along in the suitcase, something like that. Maybe they already have leishmaniasis and, you know, all of a sudden there's an outbreak where there shouldn't be an outbreak. And this has already been seen with diseases like dengue, which has traveled, and yellow fever, which has traveled, chikungunya, which I love to say, which has traveled from previously exclusively in Southeast Asia and Oceania, all the way to the Caribbean. And even this uh, Zika infection as well, that, uh, oh, yeah. you know, On the the people are very concerned as well, you know, that originally came from Brazil, I believe. And so, right. yeah. Oh, all the way from Africa and then to Brazil. Right. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> but who wouldn't want to stop in Brazil for a lovely holiday? <laughs> <laughs> They're wonderful people. They really are. Um, but this disease outbreak stuff has to stop. Um, uh, I do want to talk briefly, guys, about uh, a post-Kala Azar dermal leishmaniasis. <laughs> Uh, Say that three times fast. There you go. (laughs) Or PKDL. And this is a complication which can happen either. So people who are listening who are healthcare providers or patients, if you've been treated for Kala Azar, visceral, visceral leishmaniasis, and you've cleared it, a certain amount of time later, you can get a dermal leishmaniasis where all of a sudden the leftover parasites um, stick around in your skin. And this requires prolonged treatment of two to four months or perhaps even longer with the same drugs we mentioned before, meaning antimonials or amphotericin B. So that's the last bit of treatment I'm going to put in there. And then finally, who wants to do prevention? Let's stop it before it starts. Well, I, I Eradicating guess... Eradicating all sandflies? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kill, kill them all. Kill them all. Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Let me take this... Let me take this as one of our presidential candidates. First, we're going to build a giant wall. <laughs> take all the sandflies and deport them back to the countries they started from. Pre- I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to do this, but it's going to happen. Pre- I'm going to make this country sandfly-free again. <laughs> President Duretsky, who's going to pay for this wall? <laughs> I'm going to make the sandfly do it. <laughs> the, pre- the president of the sandflies have just said he's not paying for any wall. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, ER Josh, you were going to give a serious answer? Uh, uh, not really. <laughs> I guess, you know, it's more of a socioeconomic issue, really. So it primarily affects the poor, and so it's more of a hygiene issue as far as during poverty, when people are kind of packed into these little shanty neighborhoods, and, uh, towns, and so on. Uh, these kind of diseases spread. I believe there are some programs out there that basically are trying to tackle this and trying to reduce seeing the sandfly populations. Definitely a work in progress and there's no easy answers to it. So 
So the the travelers, you're and you're absolutely right, Josh. Where you have um, kind of urban areas where you have leishmaniasis and you have congestion like this, you know, the sandflies don't have to fly as far to transmit from person to person. So you have to try in those areas to eliminate sandflies as much as possible. Um, a cheap solution that we've used for malaria is nets. And you can try to distribute nets and sometimes even nets infused with permethrin, which is an anti-fly type of uh, anti-arthropod, I should say, um, chemical. And you put those nets there and you say, hey, these sign flies bite primarily at night. So when you go to sleep, please put your nets down around your beds if possible. So for our travelers, you guys can use these two. If you're going out in any urban or rural areas or desert areas where you're camping or sleeping, you should use long sleeves and long pants whenever you're out there sleeping. Put a net over your uh, sleeping bag well before dusk, and then you can use repellents on your body. So you can use permethrin in uh, on the nets that you have there and you can also use uh, the same DEET containing repellents that you use for your skeeters when you're out traveling. And for those of you who prefer to go organic, I believe the citronella oil is not quite as effective but will still deter a large number of the bugs. Or you could use what our friend Crystal does and have some mosquito lingerie that she wears <laughs> over over her clothes. Right. And this this is again, this is um you know, just like your nets uh contain the permethrin, these contain a anti arthropod um medication, but it should not be in contact with your skin. So she wears it over her clothes and that's the right thing to do for these anti-sandfly or anti-bug clothing. <laughs> so I think that brings us to the end of this Around the World in 80 Plagues. And, you know, I, I looked so hard. If you recall from our last episode, the internet names things. Oh yeah, yeah. Your your uh was it fear noodle for a snake? Danger noodle. Danger noodle is a snake. There was also there was also the nope rope. The nope rope. <laughs> yes, that those were both names for snakes that the internet had made. And uh thank thank heaven, because what would we do without the words nope rope? And then I believe a crocodile or an alligator was an American Danger log? Murder log. Murder log. <laughs> the American murder log. I, I, guys, I really encourage you, go look up the Internet Names Animals, or the Internet Names Things. Uh, the bumblebee, I was looking for a mosquito. I could only find a bumblebee, which was called a fluffy fat nope. <laughs> <laughs> and all of this came from the Bodie McBoat face. Yes. If you're not caught up with what we're talking about, please just listen to our, our most recent journal club where we talked about medical technologies and wearable Fitbits. And yeah, until next time, we always love to hear your feedback. We love your comments. We respond as much as we can. So please send us your comments, questions, or concerns to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash travelmedicinepodcast. I, Dr. Santosh Nair on Twitter. I'm at Dr. J Comedy. Santosh is at Toshifro. The general account is at Travel and Medicine. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And we are working our way towards better sound quality constantly. But if you hear something that makes you upset or angry, just go ahead and send your complaints our way. We will read them. I will cry myself to sleep at night and stress eat some cookie dough, and it will be great. <laughs> okay, okay, one no. more. An orca is a panda whale. <laughs> no, no, it's a manatee is a marshmallow seal. <laughs> and, and a stingray is a sea pancake.
<laughs> so you have no idea how much fun this is until you start looking them up, and I encourage you to do it. Just the internet names things or the internet names animals. But until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.